Chicago sits number one in the nation for multifamily rent growth. I just sat down with Jordan Gottlieb, multifamily broker at Essex Realty, going over all of the things that are going on in the Chicago market. Take a listen. I'm sure you'll enjoy. Listen, everybody. We all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start, and most of the education out there is just complete trash, and you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. Today's guest is Jordan Gottlieb, multifamily broker here in Chicago with Essex Realty. Welcome. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and today's episode is about, we're going to talk about the market with the highest rent growth in the country, Chicago. Yeah. So, so yeah, Jordan, he had uh, just shared a article uh, that Coaster had put out. He put it on LinkedIn, and then I, then I saw it. And um, here from August 28th, where if you, uh, yeah, you want to read a part from it, or should I? What do you want to Sure. First, I have to uh, give a small shout out to my friend Conrad, who sends to this stuff to me all the time, knowing that I'm one of the biggest, biggest enthusiasts for Chicago and uh, being a great place to live and invest and do business. And uh, he knew right away when he sent that to me that that was going <laughs> to go right up on LinkedIn and and probably with a little bit of a salty caption too uh, towards some of the haters out there. So just just real quickly to summarize it, Chicago over the last three quarters, highest rent growth in the entire country. And then what CoStar did, which I got to give them credit for, also talked about the lack of incoming supply into the market. And it turns out Chicago, as a percentage of the available inventory right now, is essentially building about the least number of units in the entire country uh, for almost any metro market out there. So just a, a quick headline, highest rent growth, highest demand, least amount of incoming supply. I think a lot of us took economics at some point. I forgot most of it, but I do remember... <laughs> High demand, low supply, you want to own something there. So I just wanted to read a little bit of excerpt just so you have it. Um, it basically says, over the last three quarters, Chicago rents are rising 3.6% annually. Uh, I know you and I would agree just as our with our finger on the market. That seems really low. Yeah, not enough. Yeah, not enough. And 20%, even in some cases, what we've seen. It's three times higher than the national average. Chicago's annual rent growth is five times the average of nearly the 20 other major metropolitan areas, five times. And then just to throw a little salt in the wound uh, in the Sun Belt, and my apologies to you, because I know you do like the Sun Belt, but the markets with the lowest annual rent growth right now, Austin, Texas, Phoenix, Arizona, Atlanta, Georgia, hosting respective losses of between you know 2.3 and 4%. I'm sure they'll be fine. Uh, yeah, if you... Yeah, I, I I knew you would say that, so I went back and looked before we uh, started. In the last five years, Phoenix, where the rents are up thirty three percent, where Chicago is not not quite at that. It's actually at it's actually at half. It's at seventeen percent. Ouch. Um, and then over ten years, the the spread gets even wider. But anyways, yeah, that I mean, there's a lot to like about Chicago, and I think the uh, supply points are really a good one. Where you know the um, 
Uh, did you say the percentages? I have it on here. Or, yeah, Chicago, the it's it's 2.3% of available inventory is under construction when the national average is 5.2. But in the 20 major markets, the 20 biggest, uh, 6.8% is the average. So yeah, not not a... Uh, in Miami and Austin, average, you know, something closer to 15 to 20%. Yeah. And then you've seen rents, at least in Austin, pull back because of that. So... Right before we started recording, I was saying perfect time to move there and buy on the dip. So, which I, and I mean it. So, yeah, um, exactly. And, and I think this is kind of what I've always said, you know, about Chicago. There, there's an, a regression to the mean in a lot of these things, right? People start moving to one city largely because maybe for a variety of factors, but a lot of it has to do to upgrade your housing situation, right? Well, if everyone starts moving to the same five cities, what happens? It becomes less affordable for everybody. And then that starts to slow down. I honestly think that happened in Chicago to, to some extent, right? It did get quite expensive to live here, and, and it still is not a cheap city to live in. But as it started becoming around the same price as a lot of other cities, such as Denver, Phoenix, Scottsdale, and a lot of places in Texas, well, that starts to even out, well, that it becomes a lot more attractive for people to live here as well. So I think things go up and down and largely end up kind of right back in the middle. Yeah, that makes sense. Because even, I mean, Miami's been, like in a lot of things, the number one rent grower or price appreciation. And that's when I see what the rents are there, I'm shocked where it's even, you know, it's more than here where you're supposed to, yeah, move to the Sun Belt because it's cheaper and more business friendly not to rent a two bed for five, uh, two bed, two bath for five grand a month. But, um, well, I, I'd actually want to use Chicago just to dispel, uh, sorry, Miami to dispel the myth for a second. You know, we get constantly berated these headlines about population growth or population losses in various cities, right? And it's always, you know, you get the, you get the cranes, e-blast that says another, this, this amount of people have left this amount of people. And it's like a dire, you know, like stabs you in the chest when it happens. Right. Well, it doesn't necessarily correlate to property values, right? Miami, the city and its County actually lost population in the last couple of years for the first time in going back decades. And I don't think anyone would say investing in Miami real estate over the last few years has been a bad decision for people. Right. right. So. While I think population loss and growth can be a, a data point for, for some things, it, it doesn't really tell you what's going to happen in the real estate market in general. Right? Well, right. And also it doesn't tell you what's priced in. Because one thing that's the, maybe the most interesting of when we look at different markets is, okay, sure, just how I said Phoenix had double the rent growth as Chicago, but Phoenix, the cap rates are a lot lower, you know, where... So it's not just as simple as going, okay, rents are growing faster here. Let's go there. You know, there's a lot more to it where in Chicago you can buy, you know, a six cap, you know, today and uh, the lowest it felt like they ever got for the kind of stuff me and you work on was like a 5.0 cap maybe. Whereas in Phoenix, you know, people were buying three caps. Um, They would, you know, be able to stabilize them to almost a five in like a year, but they were buying, you know, that was, that's a huge difference in what your deal looks like where, yeah, you can't, um, you're going to be really limited on your debt options. If you're buying a three cap, you're putting a lot more equity down. Uh, it's a totally different animal. So. Yeah. Yeah. And and everything I'm going to say has to do with mid-market real estate, right? So so I generally and my company is doing deals between $2 million and $30 million, right? So we kind of call that the, the private capital market, mid-market multifamily real estate, right? Where uh, institutions do play in this space from time to time. That's mostly in the 50, 100, and $200 million deals. Uh, institutions are are not a big player in Chicago mid market real estate. It is a lot of uh, private uh, private what we would call private equity or, or private investment, right? It's someone using their own money, or it's someone doing a, a little friends and family type of raise. So that's what I'm discussing here. I said this for a while as people kept going to the Sun Belt and other locations. 
I get it. Those places were growing faster. But it was, as you said, it was priced in. We were selling five and a half caps, maybe as low as five, but, but mostly for the best stuff around five and a quarter or five and a half. And if you went to these places in the Sun Belt, from my understanding, mostly from you telling me, actually, <laughs> it, is it was in the threes. That's a huge spread. 200 basis points, that's a huge spread. And what it, you weren't able to do, and I know you've covered this before, is that a three and a half cap does not allow for fixed rate debt on a property at acquisition, unless you're putting it. Well, unless you want to do a 30% loan to value. Yeah. yeah. Well, so it's, yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Whereas in Chicago, if you bought a five and a five and a quarter cap, you could have put 30% down and you could have got a 10 year fixed rate debt. We sold buildings uh, where people put a little bit more than that down and got full term interest only. And they're sitting pretty right now with increasing rents. Their expenses are, are relatively flat and they're looking great right now. And I always just thought that spread was really well priced in a 200 basis point gap. And uh, I've always been surprised at the the lack of investment from from national institutions in Chicago. I, I think they just don't understand the market. Yeah, I think, well, a lot of folks I've talked to, I mean, they just kind of, they don't want to deal with even learning the the whole tax and uh, situation. Like they, they're just, they start just thinking, well, pensions and property taxes, and they don't even really dig in. So I would agree if if you appointed me the 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 head czar of Chicago real estate for a day, it would just be a dependable real estate tax structure. That's it. I, I don't even know that I care what the number is at the end of the day. It could be higher than what it is now. People just need to know. And that is where our challenge is when you talk to somebody about a 15 million dollar investment here of a new building, a new building, a great location that they're really excited about, that the hardest hurdle is getting them to be comfortable with what the taxes will be, not this year, but in two years, five years, whatever that is. And it, it's challenging. It's without a doubt our, our biggest challenge. You could, you could name all the other ones that, that they say on the news or, or political or an article. The biggest one is real estate tax. No. That, that makes sense. And even when I, I moved, when I moved here, uh, the only place I had bought prior was, I guess, Madison, Wisconsin, and then in Minneapolis. In both those places, the, the taxes, they just, they just chased the sale there. And the and you pay more as a if someone would look at all the buildings, uh, like what's your you know uh, tax percentage based on your purchase price? In both those places, people pay more. But it's the thing is it's certain. So they go in Madison, they're just going to move you to 100 percent of what you paid. Twin Cities, it was like in the 90s the percentages. Yeah. So if you paid 10 million, just you're going to be somewhere between nine million and 10 million of assessed value next year. So you had a lot of certainty, but like it was like to put it in an apartment sort of vernacular, like Minneapolis, it, there, it's in the 20 something percent of uh, effective gross income for taxes. And in Chicago, I mean, it's all over the board. It's somewhere between 8% and 22% with most people kind of falling around the 15 to 16% window. Yeah. So that is that, that's what you see. Depends on well. the building. If you have a newer building, you might be on the higher end of that curve, but uh, certainly I've worked on a lot of vintage buildings over, over the last 15 years of my career. You see them as low as five or six percent. Sometimes you see ten and twelve percent. I, I was actually going to say the most common number we see is it's really between between ten and twelve percent. It, it's actually a little bit lower than you'd think. Uh, that's more for vintage stuff that hasn't sold in a while, um, and maybe the rents are even a little bit lower. Um, but th this is what I've heard o over a period of time. You know, uh, everyone thinks Texas is this is this low tax place, right? My understanding is if you buy a building in Dallas, they are going to chase that sale, and you're going to pay what? 25% of your income? Uh, yeah, give or take. But also, I mean, the tax rates are essentially the same there as they are here, you know, 2% roughly. But then they're, um, 
they're they're pushing you all to your purchase price. Interesting yeah. thing with Texas is it's a non-disclosure state. So part of the reason that it's it's uh the assessors I feel like they're aggressive is cuz they they don't know your purchase price actually. So it's it's all it's all private information. So yeah, if you um yeah, like any any broker OM like they're always unpriced. The taxes, they just leave them kind of as is and you need to make your own assumption. Um because they don't want to give any more ammo to the assessor, even though all the assessors, I'm sure they have CoStar and Trap and they can just look it up or figure out what kind of loan you put on it. But so what they do, though, is they'll move it with, to what they think is market value and they keep pushing it up. And at some point you come in and say, hey, I'm assessed for 11 million. I only paid 10, you know, and then, you you know, you want to get it down to what you paid. And so that's kind of the the game down there. But I think you're right. It's more about just knowing like it's the, the stability of, of stuff. Cause I mean, there's one example where I bought an eight unit. This is in 2014 where I, um, I, the taxes were roughly 30 grand a year. And I, based on kind of what everyone would underwrite, they should be going to like 45,000 a year. So that's what I underwrote the next year. They dropped into the 20 something thousands and they've been there for the last nine years. The, the main thing is like, if there was more certainty and I knew what was gonna happen, like it would have been between 20 and 30,000, I could have paid more for the property. But instead I'm paying based on sort of like more of a, I don't know, a, I guess what it was more of a worst case scenario, we didn't even need a, didn't even yeah. need to have in there. I think property values would rise because there would be certainty and it'd be just easier to understand. And that's what people like when they're investing, right? People, we're in an age today where you can invest anywhere in the country, right? You're a short flight, you're a Zoom call, it, it's very easy to invest wherever. Even when I started in 2008, it was actually relatively uncommon for people to try to invest in places they didn't live in. It was just a lot harder, right? Technology makes it so it's not so. You know, I'm talking about it like it's like the thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, honestly, it's it's reality. I, I knew almost nobody that invested in other places or, or certainly they didn't do it in an active way where they, were the, they, they ran the deal, they just did it passively through other people. And now with the chance to invest in a lot of places, well, if one place is impossible to figure out your fixed expense and the other ones are easy, even if it's more. And like I said, in Texas and a lot of times in Florida, your taxes as a percentage of your income are in fact going to be higher than here. People complain about taxes all the time, but they're actually, they're actually not that high yeah. as a percentage of your income. <clears throat> uh, when I started, it was almost always 15% of your income. Almost always. You're, you're talking about at the property? What's or, the, oh, yeah. What, what's 15%? Personal? In the property? What are you talking about right now? So in, two, in 2008, when I started, your property taxes would be about 15% of your something. Okay. Your state. Yeah. And rents were much lower. Now, I'd say they've fallen below 15% pretty substantially for a lot of buildings. And rents have doubled or even tripled since that time. So taxes here are not that bad. It's just it's a very difficult system to understand. The positive of it is if you're here doing business here and you understand all the little kinks that go along with yeah. it in Chicago, and there are a lot of them, building department, a lot of different things, right? Border review. Border review. You've got a competitive advantage over a lot of people. If it's an easier market to understand, well, that might allow bigger companies, you know, playing with funny money to come in and outbid you for things. And, and I think you own a lot in Chicago that you might not own if it were just a little bit easier to understand. I mean, that's, yeah, we were, I mean, we were buying these deals where they would, yeah, go in at a five and a half cap, raise the rents. Now it's a six something cap. And then we're refining out all of our equity in, uh, you know, with the four something percent rate, like that business model, that's what we were doing 2013 to 2019. That's not available if the, you're, you have to go in at negative leverage on every deal because it's, everything's growing so fast. 
And also that's why if the Phoenix, if any headlines were, it's a three cap. I mean, it was a three cap to like at the time of closing, but that's because rents had grown 20% since they signed a lease. Like, uh, So then next month you can raise the rents 20% and pretty soon in a year you'll have a, a high four cap. So really the comparison like in a lot of those Sunbelt places was, will you take a high four cap next year or do you want a low five cap in Chicago right now and next year it'll still be a low five cap because the rents were basically just keeping in line with expenses from like 2015 to until until two years ago and now um yeah that three percent rent growth number is not enough on co-star where yeah we were talking about that too where yeah that's because i mean we had i mean a new leases last year i feel like we we were raising rents five percent like uh with relative ease and this is from like the previous high not you know of some some a lot more if you're coming off a low lease or something that um a 2020 low rent and then we just did the same thing this year if not we're able to push it even further because this year we had last year it surprised us where where everyone's renewing or these things are renting quickly so we didn't really know what was up till let's say in leasing's real seasonal so it started in you know march for your april leases we didn't really know hey this is everything's really flying until maybe may and then things start to slow down about this you know at some point in august so we really we just had a two-month window where we uh, we're, you know, for, we were, you know, on fire with lease renewals and then with, re- with, uh, new lease trade outs. But then this year we knew like, okay, we, uh, it, let's assume it's going to be up again. And then we got some making up to do for last year. And so then we, we were up even more this year. So yeah. I, I, I feel like the, the 5% number is good. I I've certainly received rentals where rents have gone up 10 and 20% in some instances and not from extremely low levels from what I would have called just about market at that time. And people started really pushing the envelope if you had the right timing and the right renewal structure. So uh, I, I would say Chicago has has kind of taken on the same foundation as what you were describing was happening in Arizona now. Uh, when we look at deals, a lot of times, unless you had a really aggressive owner who really raised rents dramatically during the last couple leasing cycles, in theory, you have 10% upside in that rent roll without doing a thing. The only challenge in Chicago is, well, leasing season's kind of over. It's it's still kind of going, still kind of kicks through the ball a little bit. But now you've got winter in the next spring. You've got six to nine months to kind of sit on this. And is the market going to be the exact same, you know, as it will be next year? Nobody can answer that question. However, you brought me on here discussing yeah, the article. And- I would say the fact that nobody's building anything here is going to really be an asset to the people that currently own. And not only that, that inventory that's being built you know, we're sitting here in the West Loop. 90% of it's being built within a few, within just a few blocks of here. That's not really going to impact someone that owns a Logan Square or Rogers Park or Albany Park. Like. And the price points are building too. I'd argue it's not even going to impact most of the buildings in the West Loop where, um, you know, where we're, we're working on some now where, you know, the two bed, two bath rents are three, like in the low 3000s. You look at the brand new stuff that um, related and everyone's building, it's their, the rents are 5000 for those units. So it's really not even apples to apples because, yeah, this building, I just pulled it up. So this is our West Loop, you know, to us, our one of our nicest buildings. But, you know, it's still it's a far cry from like the true new stuff that's being delivered in mass. And yeah, um, 2022, 2023, 6.7% rent growth. I think that's at the building level. That's not even um, like on a one for one trade out. That's just on the whole rent roll, I think. And then we got other ones in this image, two at 8%, one at five, one at nine. 
that's all that's highlighted on here. So, um, but yeah, that's in all over different neighborhoods, old town, Lincoln park, wicker park. Yeah. How much, how much of that would you maybe ascribe to, uh, a couple not being able to buy a house or something like that, because there's nothing for sale. And even if they, even if they want to buy a $700,000 apartment or 500,000 interest rates have gone up so much that yeah. the price doesn't come down. Yeah, it's in. Yeah, it's. I think a lot where I think what happened actually, if someone would say, "Why did the the Sun Belt slow down?" I, I would assume you would say like it's probably new supply. I would agree. Like I think it's actually they everyone there things had gone up so much they went on defense where new household formation basically stopped. It is what it felt like where you had for every one per, every two people that let's say moved in, you had. Some people that already were there and now it feels expensive. Now they double up. So one household's gone. One of the other ones, they decide, okay, we'll go back to California where it's already it got more expensive. It's, you know, it's a hundred. From Texas to California? Uh, not as many as are moving there. And if you, and all of my neighbors have uh, 310 phone numbers in my neighborhood, like it's literally almost everybody. Um, so they're, it's, uh, everyone's from uh, LA for whatever reason, but they, um, they were, um, so it's easy to meet people because everyone's from, you know, not from there. Yeah. And then everyone's got kids the same age, too. But yeah, they are. Um, but so I feel like the opposite happened in Chicago where, you know, I didn't I didn't ever feel like people went on like full on defense here. And then to your point, um, people who would normally buy like they they're not they're not like kind of the luster, I feel like, of buying your starter condo like it's totally gone. You know, like I. We're basically the same age, I assume, but I uh, never asked how old you were, but they were, um, you know, the whole thing with 2005 to 2009 and, you know, people buying starter condos and the whole like bubble popping, you know, we, we all saw that, you know, from, from afar, I was buying my rental duplexes and stuff, but most people that would be my age that would have be buying when they're in their thirties, they're a lot of them are not like, they don't see like a they're going to have like a big financial gain buying a place. And then also like everyone now, do they like the flexibility their whole life? I mean, you read all this stuff online. Everyone really prioritizes flexibility these days, whether it's working from home or where you want to live and just, and how you want to set that up. So, I mean, a lot of people, yeah, maybe they're, they're here for, they might think I might only be here for a couple of years. Why buy? I'd rather rent than maybe I'll be, you know, advancing in my career, moving to a new city. So I think that's kind of a big a big part of it where now that that creates more renters and more renters renting for longer. To some extent, the near future of just how cities are, right? As cities used to be, big cities used to be more affordable to live in. Uh, you could have had a, a normal job and bought a house, you know, and, and lived in a place like Chicago. You could have even done it in L.A. Not, you know, this is a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and as people get priced out, we just kind of have normal jobs and normal wages. Well, then their their life in the city becomes a little bit more temporary, I, I think is really what happens. Right. And that move out to the suburbs or to a more affordable city becomes a, a higher certain a certainty. Right. If you moved here in the 90s, well, it's very likely you could have afforded to buy a two flat or a three flat and lived in it for most of your life here and rented the other two units out. Now to buy a three flat. You have to be, you have to make a lot of money yeah. to buy a three flat in this city and live in it. Uh, you have to have saved up a lot. You, yeah. you really do. And I often question like, well, if you could afford that, you could probably just afford a single family home uh, <laughs> yeah. to live in there. Right. So just the dynamics of living here ha have changed. And I think they've changed in a lot of cities. Uh, and just to talk about like population movements for a second. 
Uh, I think there, there's this myth out there that just people are flooding out of big cities. It's just not the case. First of all, that's kind of always happened. There's, there's a stat called domestic outward migration, which essentially means if you already, if you already live in America, do you, do you stay, do, does the city like New York or Chicago, do they lose more of those residents or gain? Well, New York, Chicago, LA, places like that for decades have a domestic, have they had, they've had negative outflow of domestic population essentially, which means more people have moved here, moved out than have stayed or moved in, right? What has propelled those population numbers upward or at least held them stagnant is international inward migration, right? So more people coming from outside the country and moving to those places. That is the thing that has actually slowed a little bit into larger cities because they've just become very expensive to live in. And people coming from other countries have more options of other places to move. But I need to dispel the myth That's interesting. through the millions of listeners yeah. out there that this is some new thing that people are all of a sudden moving out of big cities. It's actually been happening for decades. It's really actually nothing new. It quickened during the pandemic. A lot of things changed during the pandemic and they're kind of starting to reverse. That's, yeah, that's interesting. And then, yeah, because I, I mean, yeah, usually when you see the population numbers too, it's for the whole MSA. So you don't really know what's going on. And Chicago is a good example of that where you, uh, you know, if, if you look at the neighborhoods that you work in and I bought in, you would definitely say they're growing. They, I mean, some, some things they are taking supply offline, you know, or to build, you know, nice houses. I heard someone else say that on a really, on a good podcast, give uh, Jordan credit for saying that. Plus Lincoln Park, losing population, gaining value though. Yeah. And so, so, but what's interesting is, so if you see like, okay, Illinois, the population's flat or going down, right? Well, those people are not leaving the the prime neighborhoods of Chicago, they're leaving maybe the South side or of Chicago or other suburbs that, you know, are just haven't been as desirable, but I don't, I think you still within these places where people talk like the population's flatlining, there's still a lot of pockets where it's growing. Yeah. And, and like I was saying earlier, you know, population growth or loss in small numbers, I'm not sure it totally necessarily drives, uh, drives value of properties, right? Uh, one thing I just love to throw out is in 1953.5 million people live in the city of Chicago. Today it's 2.7 million. Would you would you be happy? <laughs> would you have been sorry? Would you have been sad if you bought a property in 1950 in Chicago and 700,000 people left the city and today you owned it? Would you have been dissatisfied with that? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody maybe left you that property? Of course not. I think we get obsessed over these numbers. And Chicago is a is an older city that's been fully built out, along with its suburbs, has been fully built out for quite a while. You're in Texas now. There's a lot more land there. That's just how it is. You can move people in far more effectively here. If you took an entire, you know, nearby suburb of Chicago, just scrapped it and started building more, uh, more housing, I guarantee you the population of that suburb would grow pretty dramatically, right? We're not building anything. We can't build something that, that can house more people. I was just in New York City. You can't, there's no land there either. I have, I have news for you. Yeah. <laughs> I've been land there for a hundred years. The population in New York City is not going to grow either. Uh, that, that's just a fundamental problem. So I, I think we latch on to these, these stats because they're easy and they get chucked at us via email and social media all the time. And, and it just makes you, it, 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 they're easy things to get a rise out of people. But I, I just think that's half the story. I, I really do. Yeah, that's interesting. I really, I didn't know that the, I, I hadn't heard of the it's domestic. Out domestic outward or inward migration. Yeah, it, big cities have had negative domestic outward migration for decades. It's nothing new. That's so interesting. I guess, yeah, where it's interesting to think, where were those three and a half million people living? Like how, how much more dense the neighborhoods had to have been 
It is bizarre. To even think yeah, because right like now there's new high rises, but there's less people. Yeah, comedy, very. You know, I, yeah, I, and I don't know. That, and the thing is, apartments used to be bigger too. They've actually been cut up over the years. So three flats have been turned into six flats, and larger buildings have been turned into units of smaller buildings. But yeah, I, you can check. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I can I can imagine where things have been became less dense. Like I mean the. You know, like there's vacant properties completely on the south side that I'm sure had, you know, four families living in it back in, you know, 1950 or whenever the sure. calc was from. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you, you know, you talked about turning, turning apartment buildings into houses. I, you know, that's, that's one of my favorite examples. If you drive to the 1900 block of Orchard, well, you'll find the definition of pop population loss, right? Because you've taken away six, six flats in a row and you've replaced it with one 12,000 square foot house. So you used to have 50 people living on six lots and now you have four. Yeah. Right. I don't think anyone would tell you that the 1900 block of Orchard in Chicago is locked mail. Yeah. No, that's a nice street. Yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> and make your way over to Burling Street and those others. Yeah. That's those are some some really nice streets. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I think too another dynamic then that we um, I know we had talked about would be good hearing about. So okay, so that's Chicago. That's what's happening. And then so what are you? What kind of um, what, what sort of conversations you having with your clients? Uh, I know you had talked value add versus stabilized deals is different than usual. I mean, let me, maybe let's talk more about like today, just in Chicago. Yeah, I, I, today's market's very active. I, I think again, you could get, you could drown in negative headlines, but I think a lot of those headlines have to do with institutional real estate and, and just more what's happening nationally. And like we said before, prices weren't as high in Chicago uh, in this run up. So we, we don't have the distress on the multifamily side today that I'm hearing that other markets have right now. I, I don't know anyone in distress. Doesn't mean that it couldn't happen, uh, but but I'm not seeing it uh, just yet. Um, the value add versus stabilize is a really interesting thing. And and uh, this is why I've loved your investment style for a while is that you've always kind of shunned the heavy, heavy value add and just said, you know, why would I do that when I could just buy a nice property that that has room to grow rents and and run it well and, and, and sit on that. It's a lot less work, a lot less headaches. And a lot less risk, right? Yeah, that's been the pitch. It's a more money, more money for less work and uh, less and less risk. Most and more importantly, yeah. But throughout, like I said, I started in two thousand eight, and back then, value add was a really tough thing to do. No one would finance it, and it was it was it was very very difficult, right? But starting around maybe 2012, 2013, somewhere in there, up and through just basically this last year, the majority of Chicago neighborhood buyers out there wanted value add, right? Which is to say, they wanted to redo kitchens, baths take out a boiler, put in a heating system, things like that, spend, you know, whatever it was, 20,000 to 50,000 a unit, reposition the property, raise rents a lot and refinance their money out, right? That, that, was, that was the play. And it was actually much harder to sell a brand new, pretty building than anyone would have thought. Those are the ones where everyone slaps you on the back when you send out, oh, Jordan, great listing, amazing. And I'm all, I used to think, this is the toughest thing to sell. You know, the thing that needs absolutely no work that that's humming on all cylinders, right? Yeah, no upside. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the stuff that- What do I do to it? It's the stuff yeah. that doesn't even have a kitchen that used to, <laughs> yeah. that used to be the easiest sale, right? Uh, but but what happened is, is, you know, a long time ago, you would do a value add and get to a nine cap or a 10 cap on, on your total project costs or something like that. When a stabilized property sold at, you know, this is old days, six, six and a half, seven cap even, there was a nice spread there. But what I saw happen over the last several years is the value add came down almost to the exact same price that the finished version would sell at. Maybe the finished version was worth a five and a half to a six cap. So we'll call it a five and three quarters. And people were doing value add to get to six and a quarter. Yeah. <laughs> that, and, there's not a lot of margin for error yeah. there, Drew. Have you, have, you ever, have you ever speculated why? 
I, I mean, I have a theory and I'll share it after you. If, uh, I'll throw a few out there. I don't want to get anyone in trouble because they, they've certainly told me why okay. how they do it. Well, one, it, it's easier to refinance your money out, right? That, that's recycling capital. It's easier to do it. If you buy a stabilized deal and put Freddie debt on it, it, it becomes a lot harder to, even if rents do go up, it, it becomes a lot harder to refi that money out, right? Uh, another thing I know is that if you have investors behind you who are doing real estate, a lot of times they'll tell you, why do I need you? <laughs> why do I need you to just go buy a new building that's completely stable? I could probably do that on my own. I don't think a lot of them could, quite frankly. Uh, so I, I think it's a little bit of that prove it model of just, hey, we took this and we made it like that, right? We took a kitchen, looks like this, and now it looks like that. Yeah, there's that's that's my theory. Yeah, because where, because with this, my, with my, you know, the the deals that we were doing a lot of, where it was, yeah, maybe buy it at a five seven five cap, but the rents are low all we need to do is raise the rents next year and it's a six and a half cap. My, my investors I was using at the, you know, I, I was at the time and still have, but they, they don't, they didn't need to see the whole gut renovation to be impressed. They actually appreciated this is a newer, nicer building. One of them has his money came from a construction company. So he, he gets it. He'd rather have a newer, nicer building to start. So that's why I could raise money for those deals. But then, yeah, your average person, yeah, that's throwing money in a deal. They, the more stuff happening at the property, the more they like it. And um, it seems like it's easier to raise money if you're going, we're going to buy it. We're going to do a gut renovation. And that's like, but then it's still like a tighter yield. But then that's what everyone then was gunning for. So, yeah, that's kind of, um, you know, so I, I thought. That's the case too, where you need to, you need, you need, I need to show some activity to, you know, justify essentially my, myself in the equation is what, you know, yeah. they would, they would maybe be saying, uh, but on the, I don't know, on the flip side, it doesn't, uh, I would feel like you could explain around that. I mean, I have where, why would you want to have all these moving pieces and take on all this risk and you have to then execute a refinance? Why would you want to take all that on? Sure. Um, Sure. I, I will. I will say it, it. It typically worked out better than that six and a quarter cap I was talking about over time because it would be eighteen months from buying the project to stabilization or whatever that is, and typically rents had grown dramatically more than what had been projected in that in that pro forma. But, but that's not. But they would have on the other buildings too, yeah, right? It, it yeah. Is. <laughs> so I, I don't. I don't want to uh, say anything to kind of demean. Yeah. Oh no. Oh no. No. Because that still does uh, comprise probably the majority of my client base. So. Yeah. And and two, also there's there's usually a bigger spread. But when they, you know, I think too, if you're not looking, you know, you have a unique vantage point. But if you're really only looking at value add deals, the the deep renovation ones, you might not be in in the loop, frankly, on something that's just a simple loss to lease play what's the spread on that and realize, oh, actually, this is actually kind of close to what I'm doing with none of the extra work where they're not they're not really looking at those deals or just saying, no, I need I need to renovate. And yes. they don't they don't even uh, not even in the loop potentially where you you are. So you're seeing that 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 is that is typically what happened until I would say I'm losing track of time now, but I'd say maybe 18 months ago. All of a sudden you started to hear the people who would always say, no, I need to do work. I need to do work. I need to do work. Well, all of a sudden you started to hear them. Maybe it was probably about when interest rates started to change and go up, but rents were also starting to go up in Chicago, right? All of a sudden they were kind of saying, you know what, wouldn't be the worst thing to buy something that's already kind of nice, but maybe it's 10 years old, right? Maybe it's 15 years old and I could do a new kitchen, a new bath, but I probably don't even need to do the whole thing. We're talking about cabinets or a backsplash or tile or something like that. And then I could take rents from 2,500 to 3,000. Or, or something like that. And it's like, well, I used to do a gut rehab for that kind of pop. 
Yeah. Why would I ever do that? The other thing is too, let, let's, let's just throw it out there. Construction costs are nuts right now. And that's, uh, that's been probably the key driver to bringing the heavy value add buyers into the more stabilized market, right? Because while your rent increases are higher than they used to be, your construction costs, I would say have tripled from a 10 years ago. It's somewhere in that yeah, it's probably I've heard, I've heard as much as 150,000 a unit to gut rehab a building. When, when you're talking about every yeah. you know, lands, permits, architects, absolutely everything. That math doesn't work. It, it just doesn't. You don't have to throw it in the Excel or, or anything like that. It used to be 50,000 a unit to gut rehab. It used to be, you know, a kitchen was 7,500 and a bathroom was 3,500, things like that. Uh, it's just too much. And then, uh, as you know, in construction or value add, it's hard to put fixed rate debt on some of those deals, right? So now you're paying a huge interest rate and you don't know what rates are going to be when you stabilize. And that's a huge question mark to go into a deal. So if you can buy something like the type of assets you, you, uh, you're chasing, if you can buy something around a six cap and move rents up to market or redo some hallways or do some cosmetic work and some management work and raise your cap rate by 50 or 75 bips, it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, it makes sense to me. That's how we've been. That's what we, we're yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> That's why we've been playing there. But yeah, that I think the um yeah, that all makes sense and the reasons why those value add buyers shifted. And I know too the city's been more strict on needing to pull full permits versus just pulling like a easy permit or repair and replace one. So then now that also added to the cost right now. If on every deal you have to redo the insulation in the walls, you have to change up the water service. I mean, that that alone on like a on like say a six unit, I mean that already added like fifty grand a cost. You know, water service is twenty five grand. And, and I've then, never heard of it yeah. paying you more because the water service is new. Right. We're heard of Yeah. So but yeah, they uh tough pointed. Yeah. <laughs> they don't yeah. care. Yeah, you don't you don't get extra for that. Um, but yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense where, and when people think 150,000, that's, that's nuts. I mean, that's the highest number I've heard, but I've, if, you know, unlike a five unit, I mean, that could be the cost because you're, again, you start adding up these big ticket items that you're not spreading out over a lot of units. Like the ones I just mentioned, that was already, you know, if it's a five unit, that was already 10 grand a unit on just the two things I rattled off. So yeah, that's I've. That's a full, full gut rehab. I think the number's closer to a hundred, but that's still, it's still a huge number. Yeah, which which then when I looked at these deals in the Sun Belt, I'm like, you're people doing stuff for ten thousand unit, twenty thousand, but it's because you're not you're not really doing much. Like you're basically, and people call it a renovation, but it's like you're you're putting you're painting the cabinets, buying new fronts, new countertops, painting, doing some like you know this. It's like so simple, it's almost funny, but it's like uh, and then some stuff in the bathroom. Where, but not any, not touching any plumbing or anything. And they're like, I'm like, this is, sounds like a deep, this is like a big turnover. Like it's not even like a, a renovation, but it's, um, well, the reason it's because of that, it's because, uh, I mean, all the plumbing, electric, everything's already like the modern stuff. Cause what, like a lot of the renovation deals you're thinking of, they're built in like 1900, 1920. An old building in the Sun Belt was built in 1970. You know, with, I mean, really a lot of the building boom didn't happen until the fifties and sixties when air conditioning was more ubiquitous actually. Yeah. So then, and then there was a big boom in the seventies and eighties until the tax laws changed in the eighties. And then there was kind of a, a lull in the nineties. Like that's actually the trajectory. So then, I mean, you don't need to do much, um, to really move the rents. Cause you, you have, uh, essentially if you think of like buying a deal that would be built here in the, in the eighties, if they didn't do something 
like where it feels really outdated with the heating and cooling. Like you just, yeah, it's just change the flooring, repaint it, uh, spruce up the kitchen and bathroom and you're out of there. That what, what you're describing is what we're finding to be the most desired types right now, right? So you might've had a old building, a hundred year old building that was rehabbed sometime in the last 10 to 30 years or something like that, where if you don't have to open up the walls, everything we're describing goes out the window because your expenses are far lower. The city's involvement is is essentially nothing if you're right. an opening wall. So if you can keep things uh, in the areas of the apartment, you can see, and, and that's your turnover, that's your renovation. That's what people are loving right now. Uh, and that's, that's to me, our most desired deal type. And those are the ones that have probably held their value the best as well. They almost all have major loss to lease uh, in, in rents, right? Because unless you have a really aggressive owner who is really raising rents over the last couple of years, now you do have the kind of that. I've never, I've never been in a market where I used to yell at some junior brokers of ours who would say, well, you can raise rents 12% without doing anything. No <laughs> chance. I don't even have to look at the, yeah. you know, that's, that's broker BS. And I yeah. am a broker. Yeah. Right? It's, just, it's only just happened. Yeah. It's really where, where you really say, wait a second, this is $2,100 for a two bedroom. It, it's just about the cheapest two bedroom you can find in that area. It's 2,400 without doing a thing. And then you tell that to a buyer and they say, oh, that's broker talk. But I know in the back of their head, yeah. <laughs> I looked on your website before we came here and you're advertising almost the same unit for 2,700. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't tell me I'm full of it, you know? Yeah. So, so we're seeing a lot of deals like that. Uh, if they have assumable debt, obviously that makes it a lot easier to sell. I wouldn't say we're getting a massive premium for those only because I, right for right now, the ones we're selling have maybe three, four years left on them. They don't have nine years left on them. And people still have to kind of be comfortable with whatever they're going to be able to do in a refi in a few years. But that just makes the deal work, quite frankly. You know, you can buy a six gap and finance it at four and a half, uh, you know, a lot easier than the way around. Right. Yeah. That, that's helping propel a few deals right now. But uh, there's only so many deals out there like that. And uh, the rest of them, you got to know how to price. Yeah. And that's, yeah, for the loan assumptions, it's, yeah, especially with these ones I see where it's got just two or three years of term, it's really tough to have that add much value to the property. Cause I mean, a lot of people just look at it as like, okay, I'm just saving that much in interest and then some like discounted back and take like a net present value of and like, what is like my price today kind of factoring that in. But unless, yeah, unless you have like, you know, yeah, like you said, like nine years a term, it's not really changing the whole profile of the deal. It's just changing part of it. You're paying less interest. You can put less down starting out, but if interest rates don't really change from here, or, or you don't move the rents enough, like you're going to need to probably add money when you refi. Uh, just, a, just a PSA to any owners or brokers out there who are, who are looking at properties with two or three years left uh, on a suable debt deal. Every day, that property starts to kind of lose, lose its value uh, to some extent, right? Because at some point, they won't even let you assume that note. And these assumptions come with a 1% assumption fee. And then you likely have to come up with, what, about 50 to 70 bips of, of other costs for updated appraisals, environmental things like that. Yeah, it depends how much the loan amount is, I guess, where it's... The, the more yeah. the better. And this is easier, right? The higher the number. But we're working on right now where it's like a $2 million assumption. It's the cost to assume that loan is about a little over $30,000. Yeah, I would think it'd be... Yeah, I think it'd be more. What kind of lender? It's like a Fannie Freddie uh, type. Yeah. Thing. So it's somewhere in the neighborhood. So you're saving you know, the interest savings is about that on an annual basis, right? So within about a year and a half, you will start recouping that investment on a four and a half year. Yeah. But if you only have two or three years, 
you start to almost look at break even unless the loan's 20 or 30 million dollars or something like that. So but you have if to thinking of selling, start yeah. doing it now. <laughs> but you have to originate a loan anyway. So there's some of those costs are overlap, but some are some are not like there's a, you know, on an assumption you're paying an upfront review fee that sometimes that you're usually not paying a lot of times. Yeah, you don't have to pay the point when you originate a new loan. But some of them are kind of cost you pay either way, appraisal, physical inspection, uh, lender legal, like those, those overlap. That's the yeah. pitch. If There's one particular yeah. lender in Chicago, okay. I'm sure you know who it is that comes with fairly few, uh, fairly few fees. Yeah. So that, okay. If that's your alternate, uh, I'm not doing a PSA. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, but a lot, a lot of, uh, people we deal with have banking relationships, right? Uh, this is their own money or it comes from a small pool. And if it's their own money, a lot of times they will go to, you know, the biggest multifamily lender in Chicago who essentially has some of the lower, lower rates. They're, they're generally low leverage but they have almost no fees as well. So if you kind of, if you kind of compare a Fannie Freddie versus, versus that type of loan, it can start to become a wash actually a lot quicker than you think. Yeah, no, I, I, I realized that. And they, I, cause I see what uh, part of the market they serve and also it's a lot easier. So if you, you know, you're already at, if you factor in ease, uh, you know, then, then that, that, see that, you know, uh, and they, and a lot of lenders we're talking about will do non-recourse now because their leverage, their leverage has come down a lot. So, I know you love, you know, the Fannie Freddie loans are non-recourse. They come with a lot of benefits, right? There are a lot of relationship lenders out there now because their leverage has dropped into the 60s that they will actually offer non-recourse. And that's not something we had seen almost ever. That's uh, interesting. Yeah, particularly with some of the larger lenders. Well, I don't think they're really granting you too big of a too big of a, a gift because they're only lending you 60% of the yeah. uh, their property. Things have to drop by uh, 41% for them to even start losing a buck. Yeah, I know, but it's it's an interesting time to do that, though. I mean, if you think, uh, you know, those decisions usually would get made more in the at the peak, you know, not not on the, you know, whatever we're in now towards, you know, and I think let's just let's wrap up. But I think um, one thing I heard you say to me before I wanted to close with this, but why is now not 2008? <laughs> so uh, it's funny as your career goes on. Uh, more recently, I start to remember less and less uh, of every day and every transaction that goes on. But when you start in multifamily brokerage on September 20th, uh, 2008, you remember almost every hour uh, of it. And, you know, uh, Jim Darrow, my partner, put me on the phone and said, you know, here, I have a listing at Webster and Racine. Want to call a bunch of people, see if they want to buy it. And I did, I did barely even read the news at that point. Sure, I'll call a bunch of people. And people would laugh at me. <laughs> what, you out of your mind? You know, the stock market lost 10% today. <laughs> you know, I... I, I I have almost no, you know, all my money's wrapped up in other deals. Uh, yeah, if you're calling then uh, Lehman just collapsed, are you not? Are you not watching the news? TV in the office, you know. So, so that's what would happen, and, and, and I remember every every hour of those days. It was needless to say a pretty tough time uh, to start out. Um, what happened then is that uh, debt dried up. Right, no one would lend money, and I mean no one. Goldman Sachs during my first month needed a loan, <laughs> you know, from the yeah. government yeah. to pay its employees. That's how that's how dire it was. So if you're a 24 year old and you were eight back then, you know, this is what was going on. If you think now is bad, I, I wish I could put you, you know, back in those shoes in, the, in those days. Uh, just a different a different landscape. A lot of times, the only lenders that were out there were the ones who were selling the property, right? So if they took it back into their REO or they were helping uh, helping a borrower out with a with a shortfall, they would offer to finance the property just, just to get the deal done and get it off their books or, or make it from a bad loan to a healthy loan. So there was no lending and there was no equity. 
No debt, no equity. What are the two components of buying real estate? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Equity, right? You I, both, you know, to buy a deal or at least one of them. That's that's for sure. There was no money out there, so when we would put things on the market, there were maybe, and, and I don't really exaggerate, probably moments in two thousand nine, where maybe ten groups in the city of Chicago had the capability of buying a a multifamily building. Yeah, that's wild. Ten, maybe maybe twenty, twenty five, and the number steadily grew as things went on. But it wasn't a lot of people. And, and I also just have a little message for people that are that are always playing the waiting game, that are waiting for the market to go down further or, or this. They're always trying to time things. The market was worth more in 2009 than it was in late 2009 or, or 2010. But the people that bought in 2009 got great deals too, right? Because they did deals that worked in that moment. And as things went down, their offers got lower. But they kept the one, the people I knew that did best in that time, they bought whenever the opportunity arose to do a deal that made sense. And that's the biggest thing. Right now, one of my bigger frustrations is, is, oh, I'm going to wait till there's more deals. I'm going to wait till there's more deals, more deals. You can't time the market. If you knew how to do that, you'd probably already be yeah, <laughs> yeah. successful for a lot of other reasons, right? But don't do that. If, if a deal works and you have the ability to do it and you like the real estate, you like the asset, it's a good product, just buy it. And then, yeah, there might be another one down the line at a little better deal, a little lower price, but you never know what the circumstances are going to be and, and you never know when things are going to start going up. And I remember a lot of people waiting too long too long. And they jumped in in 2012 or 2014 when things had already gone up. They, they probably did a really good job. They probably did really well for themselves still, but they passed up on a lot of deals back then. So summary, there is no debt. There is no equity. Right now, there's still a lot of debt, not as much as there was you know, a year or so ago. It's still a lot of debt out there though. And there's a ton of equity out there. A ton. No, that's what I remember too. And actually, before you said no debt, no equity, I was thinking those two things to myself. And I was thinking there's feels like there's no tenants. Like, cause that, cause I had bought, I bought three, commer I bought three deals in 2009, two in 2010, one in 2011. And what these were commercial deals. And it felt like if we lost the tenants we have, there's nobody to come back. Commercial tenants. Yeah. yeah. This is retail. This is industrial. This is office. There's, and then, I mean, and the occupancies dropped and, you know, multifamily everywhere as well. Um, so yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Cause I know people who were buying stuff for, you know, pennies on the dollar, some of these apartment deals and especially in the real hard hit areas like in Florida and in Phoenix. And the reason those turned into just whatever values in half and all the crazy stuff that happened was there was also no, there was nobody in the buildings. So you got, you're buying them all cash. Yeah. You're just, uh, all your tenants, they, they left and there's nobody there and it's in foreclosure. And I mean, that's what I, I remember that as well and was fortunate enough. I had brand new fresh equity and was ready to go 2009, but we didn't, it was the same thing you're saying where the, it looked like things were going to get worse. But if you, we were buying deals where our business plan was, we're going to have it as a seven or 10 year hold or maybe longer, but that's at least what we were, you know, underwriting. And you look at that and you go things by 2015, this is going to be turned around and we're going to, you know, this is going to be good deals. And that's what happened. By uh, according to our deal sheet, 2014 was, it was hot. It wasn't just that it had recovered. Things were hot. R rents had grown. Interest rates were there where you'd want them to be. And things were really starting. Uh, that, that's what I remember. So if you bought in 2010, it was only four years until you would probably refied all of your money out of it would be my guess. Yeah. Uh, well, plus some extra. Yeah. Those are, Yeah. Because rates all, yeah, rates moved down too that whole time. I mean, because yeah, when we, the rates we had in 2010, it were, they were in the sixes. And so then, um, you know, rates, rates went into the fours. Yeah, the first deal we bought was five and a half percent interest. And then the next, the next th 
five were in the sixes, and then by twenty thirteen rates were in the fours. Okay. But yeah, that. But yeah, no, you know what? I remember the same thing, and yeah, it was. Um, yeah, twenty fourteen. It was hotter. This this first time I ever paid below a six cap in my life. So look at you. Yeah, that was. I mean, well, that was what it was like. I mean, it was. Yeah. You know, a six to an eight cap leading up to that. Sure. So it was. Oh, I I remember selling some deals that were. They were uh, in tough locations. Everything had been stolen out of the building. And I, I don't even, I would venture to guess the people stabilized it to a 15 cap uh, would be my guess. And we don't even say numbers like that. Yeah. Enough, right. But it's, <laughs> it's crazy to say it, make, it makes me feel old, you know, when I say it, but it absolutely happened. I mean, it, everything had been stolen out of the building. There's a lot of crazy stories I could tell with that. It was also just a, a really sad time, right? You, you'd meet with somebody who had uh, put their life savings or a lot of work into converting a building to condos somewhere and they had lost just about everything and it wasn't really their fault they hadn't really done anything irresponsible uh it was just it was just horrendous timing on that part and then you'd watch the value of it go down you know almost every month right you could say i think it's worth three million now well uh, well next month now it's two eight now it's two six now it's two five right and it that's not really what's happening now it, it, it really isn't i think values have held relatively well there has been some diminution in some of them um, but what I'd say to anyone who's thinking of selling right now is the biggest asset you can have other than your property is to be realistic and to get real help from someone who has experience in this sector, right? Because when you overprice something in a shaky market, you could really actually lose money by not being practical about what your value is, right? If you're going to sell it, yeah, if you're just testing the market, you're going to hold it for 20 years, all that, whatever. But I think that's where we really veer from the last five or seven years, right? In the last five or seven years, there was really no penalty for asking some insane price, right? You always, yeah, wait for that 1031 buyer, you know, but- They would imagine the rates went down. Or but there's way less 1031 buyers and everybody, yeah. So. And if the market is shaky, if it's kind of if it's kind of going up or, or sorry, if it's kind of just moving up and down, but it, it starts to go down, well then 10 million becomes nine and a half, becomes nine, becomes eight. And by the time you're ready to take nine, well, you missed nine, now it's eight and a half or eight. And that's something that I think a lot of people who are doing multifamily right now, especially in the brokerage side, they haven't experienced that type of a market. And you've really got to know what the market is going in and be be real about it. Because uh, you, you could cost yourself money, you cost your client money. And you know that's not what we want as brokers. We want to do a great job for our clients and to get them the highest price out there. Yeah, that's fire. You might have yeah. other priorities, but yeah, we need to, yeah, we need to find those, uh, the shaky, the shaky brokers with the shaky deals. But yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. I feel like just looking at my own stuff, the, yeah, I think, you know, obviously cap rates went up because uh, interest rates where there's a high uh, correlation there, but rents went up so much here that then that basically, I feel like it just offset that essentially completely where, you know, if you, if you weren't able to move your rents, um, maybe a different story, but at least when I look at my own deals, it's like they've just held steady thanks to the rent growth. So, I mean, if yeah. rates keep going up, you know, which it seems like they're, we're kind of leveling off here, but, um, you know, if I mean, we'll, yeah, we'll see, nobody knows, but like, you know, for, yeah. I mean, you asked me why this is different. I just thought of another thing. I think the, the, the month I came into Essex, I think the U S economy lost 800,000 jobs in that, in that month. Wow. 
you know, I think we, I think we gained 200,000 and I can't remember if that was a disappointment or they, they keep that. They keep revising it down. It's like they revise it down and then later on where they end up keep announcing 200,000 then they revise it down to like a hundred. Yeah. And, no then, ever- and then, and then, and then they revise it down again later, like where, so I don't know some of these numbers, but we're at least not losing in, in the hundreds of thousands of jobs and 800,000. I mean, it's just, it, it was absolutely nuts. Just people losing jobs left and right. And it's just not where we're at now. It doesn't, Hey, it doesn't mean we, we, we can't get there, but it, it would just seem what, again, if you think now is, is bad or it's challenging, remember no debt, no equity. That was 15 years. Yeah. Ago. Neither of it was available from anyone. Yeah. It does seem like the job losses come at the very end sure. actually, which is weird, but that's like almost signals the bottom. It seemed like, yeah. Um, we're now we, we looked at it. The largest companies, they kind of have the, the job losses, but then the small and medium people are still hiring. Yeah. Well, even I more meant in the whole cycle, like yeah, that sure. was sort of the, if that's where the biggest cuts were, I mean, that was kind of the start of the bottoming out, but yeah. either way, great. Thanks for being on Jordan. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How, how can people get in touch with you? They want to yeah, get a hold of you here. I'm not going to get my phone number out uh, on the <laughs> area, but uh, go to S6RealtyGroup.com. You can see our inventory there and uh, my contact information should be there as well. A lot of good inventory right now and a lot more to come. Perfect. And I'll I'll add this one number to the episode. Don't (laughs) worry, guys. All right. Thanks, Jared. Thank you. (laughs) If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.